You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, in 1969, Mr. Rogers of uh, the TV show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood fame showed up here in Washington, D.C., Uh, to express his disagreement with a proposal by President Nixon to cut funding for public broadcasting. And uh, Mr. Rogers testified before a Senate subcommittee and passionately but respectfully uh, made his case for the need for this medium uh, to help children process their emotions. Uh, And as he presents to this uh, gruff and kind of resistant group of senators, you watch over time, they slowly soften uh, as Mr. Rogers begins to quote a poem about children. Uh, And by the end of it, you feel, you can watch the clip on YouTube, you feel the mood in the room shift and you see him win over the leadership of the Senate till by the end, uh, the senator presiding over the hearing says, I'm supposed to be a tough guy but what you just did gave me goosebumps. And then he said, Mr. Rogers, it looks like you just earned the 20 million. And the people erupt in applause. It's a beautiful scene. You can watch it online. And as you do, you go, it's so inspirational. It's so sweet. It's so cool. Who wouldn't root for that guy? Who doesn't love Mr. Rogers? And I would submit to you in that moment, there wasn't a single senator that at the end of that hearing turned to a henchman and said, he's gotten too powerful. He dies tonight. Yo, what? No one would say that. No one would say, we have got to kill Mr. Rogers. No one wants him to die. Why do I bring that up? Because that's where we are in the life of Jesus. Jesus is going to confront the leadership of his nation. And by the end of it, meek and mild Jesus, sweet and tender Jesus, good shepherd Jesus, they're going to say he has to die. And what I want to look at is, why? Why did they want to kill him? What did he say? What did he do that made the leadership of his nation that should have bowed and called him Lord say, no, he has to die tonight? Why would they want to kill meek and mild Jesus? And I want to look at why so we can get an answer to that question. But also, he is going to challenge the people of that day about what is the nature of true religion. And that's where not only will we understand why they wanted to kill him, he is going to also challenge and confront us. What is it that Jesus is saying God wants from you and from me? And how will we respond? Uh, But to catch you up in the story, we're in Mark. And uh, Mark, we're in the critical end game of the gospel. Uh, The first 10 chapters of the gospel of Mark covers about three years of Jesus' life and ministry. The last six chapters of Mark, over a third, cover one week. We are meant to linger here. It's all been building to this. And last week, we saw Jesus enter Jerusalem. And he entered riding in, proclaiming himself to be king. And not just proclaiming himself to be the king over this nation at that time. He proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, the king over all kings, the ruler of nations, the hero after which every hero postures themselves, right? And today, we're going to watch him ride into the temple, the center of Jewish life, and shut it down and take over. And Jesus is going to hold court. And many of you go, Ben, 
this is Christmas. You're supposed to be talking about baby Jesus. Well, yes, we're speeding along to the end. This is not the inauguration of Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem. This is the culmination of the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem. We're going to watch the son of David enter the city of David. The prince of peace entered Jerusalem, the city of peace. And we're going to watch the king of kings hold court. And what we're going to watch him do is pick a fight. And what I want to say about this is this. Whenever I arrive at these passages, it's very hard for me to preach them. I'm going to preach a little bit. But I just think when we get to these moments, I just want to stand next to you and teach him. I want to show you what it is King Jesus is up to and just provide a little bit of commentary as we watch the king in the holy city. All right? So with that said, here we go. Uh, Jesus arrived in the city on a Monday. He will be tried and executed on Friday. We've got three days in the middle here that we're traveling through. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Let's begin. Tuesday starts in verse 12 of chapter 11. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now let me stop here. This confuses some people. Jesus just declared himself to be king, and his first act is to yell at a tree. Uh, is he stressed? Like, what is going on here? Uh, this would not play well on the West Coast. Um, if you follow the progression here in Mark, we looked at last week, he rode into the city to the temple, and then he inspected the temple. And now we see here, he comes in, and he curses the tree. On his way to arrive at the temple, where he will wreck shop and overturn temples and drive out the money changers. And then you will see next time, the disciples will evaluate the tree 24 hours later, and it's dead. And what you realize as Mark tells the story is that layout is intentional. It's called an interchange. Tree, temple, tree, temple. He's interlacing them to make a point. Now, some background here will help you. In the Old Testament, the fig tree was a symbol of the nation of Israel because it was indigenous in the area. And so if you read through the prophets, the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Micah, all through the prophets, they call Israel the fig tree. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, when the prophet Jeremiah is giving some of his strongest pronouncements of judgment on the leadership of nations in his day, he said, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They commit abominations and don't even know how to blush. And then he says, and God says, when I went to gather, there was no figs on the tree. Micah chapter 7, God says, there is no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth. This tree is a picture of his people. And what he sees is, I'm pronouncing judgment on something that has leaves but no figs. You have the appearance of fruitfulness, but no fruit. And it's a picture of the leadership of his nation. They have the externals of religion, but the heart is gone. And so he will write in to judge. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So he inspected the temple the day before. And what did he see? Again, some background here. Uh, the temple in that day had been widely expanded by King Herod and the outer court of the temple was massive. 
And it was called the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles were ethne, the nations. Uh, it was where people from all over the world could come to Jerusalem and learn about God and what it is to seek God and know God, right? And if you were Jewish, you would pass through the court of the Gentiles into the center of the temple because that's where you would sacrifice. And you would come on holy days like the Passover, which is where we are, and you would sacrifice an unblemished animal. Now, if you were journeying there by foot, like from Galilee, that's a 90-mile walk. If you're trying to bring a lamb with you, there's a high probability it could get hurt or blemished. So you wouldn't do it. Uh, you would sell the animal back home, and you would just arrive with your money. And when you got to Jerusalem, uh, you would exchange your foreign money for money that was accepted at the temple, and then you would buy a, a temple-approved, unblemished lamb there in the city, and you could get the salt and oil and wine, other things you would need to sacrifice, and then the money to pay the temple tax. And so for, for years, much of that happened on the Mount of Olives, just on the outskirts of town. All those business transactions to prepare for worship were taking place. But in AD 30, just a little before this, the leadership of the temple saw, hey, there's a lot of money changing hands around what we're doing here in the worship of the temple. We need to get in on this action. We need to be the ones selling temple-approved uh, lambs and exchanging money, etc. Where better to do it than this wide-open big space we have in the middle of the temple itself? And so they set up the selling of animals and the exchanging of money in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, at this time, around Passover, Josephus, the historian, said there could be upwards of two million pilgrims in town to sacrifice. So imagine that. Josephus says at Passover, at one year, over a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed. So this outer court, when Jesus walked in, imagine the 4th of July celebrations on the National Mall, but everyone brought livestock. <laughs> That's what it's like. It is Bedlam. And it's the place where the nations, people like you, uh, many of you and me, we're meant to meet with God in quiet reflection and prayer. And Jesus walks in and imagine how he feels. God said to the nation, you are a kingdom of priests. Your job is to help other nations know me. And rather than do that, you took the place designated for them and used it for your own purposes. You're not expressing the heart of the people. He curses the tree. This isn't right. And so he casts judgment on them and he casts out the money changers and drives out those who are selling animals. Uh, it was interesting, when I was a youth pastor, some of the first kids in my ministry were these two kids that loved uh, heavy metal music, like death metal. They would wear all these shirts with like skulls bleeding and whatnot. But, but they really uh, had a true faith in God. It was interesting when they were really studying Jesus, they found him fascinating. And one of them said he had a project for school where he had to study somebody who was a hero from history. And he said, I made a video, I wanna show it to you. And he showed me this video and it was scenes he had clipped out of a Jesus movie. And it's Jesus like speaking in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus healing the blind. But as he's doing it, there's kind of this ominous music in the background that's like, doom, 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 doom. And then whenever it gets to the chorus, I couldn't understand what the guy was saying, because it just sounded like, right? And then suddenly the drums are like, and every time it got to the course, it was Jesus losing it in the temple, just flipping over tables and driving out animals. And this kid's watching it like, that's my guy. That's my guy. And then afterwards, he's like, what do you think? And I was like, I think, uh, I think you did capture the vibe. Uh, he definitely was making a statement, driving out uh, the money changers and those selling animals. And it was an indictment on the leadership. 
And in verse 16, it says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He shuts the whole thing down. And then when he does it, he quotes two prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. In verse 17, it says, and he was teaching them. So he drives them out. He takes a seat and takes over and begins to teach saying, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you made it into a den of robbers. What does he say? I see leaves, but no fruit. I see the externals of religion, but you're missing God's heart. You've turned religion into busyness and opportunism. But what it's supposed to be is prayer. What is prayer? It's a humble dependence on God and his power. For the nations, I want you to seek God humbly and help others do the same. That's my heart, and you're missing it. Now, if you were part of the leadership of the temple at that time, how do you feel? This temple is the hub of the religious social, political, economic life of the nation. This is where politics, religion, and money all get rolled up into one, right? And this guy just marched in and shut down your economy on the biggest day of the year. This is like pulling the fire alarm in the mall on the week of Christmas. And so not only that, he has shamed you in front of a crowd of people about how you run things. If you're the leader of the temple at that time, how do you respond? What you should have done is remembered your Bible because Malachi, the prophet, spoke of this day. Malachi 3 says, the Lord in whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. We've been waiting for the king. He will suddenly arrive in the temple. But then Malachi says, but who can endure his coming? For he's like a refiner's fire in a fuller soap. The Lord is arriving in the temple. And when he does, he's like a refining fire. He will burn away the dross. He's like a fuller soap. He will scrub off the dirt. You ready for that? That's how he comes. Zechariah 14 says, when he comes, there will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. He has come. But how do they respond? Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him. I want him dead. He came after my power and he came after my money. He has to go. You go, well, if they're in charge, why don't they just do it? Why are they seeking a way to do it? It says, for they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Here's the problem. These people like him and there's like 2 million of them. And so he's got the approval of the mob at the moment. So he continues unharmed. Verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. Tuesday, Jesus comes and brings judgment. On Wednesday, the leadership will respond. And you see in verse 20, they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. He has brought judgment. Now they are going to come back after him. In verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now they're not really asking, hey, we noticed you got all this authority. Where did you get that from? Looks great on you. Like this isn't the vibe. They're the ones in charge of the temple. Okay. The temple's under our authority. It's under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. So this is more the tone of, hey, who do you think you are? You're not a Pharisee. You're not a Sadducee. You're not a Herodian. You're not even a licensed rabbi. You're a carpenter. And yet you walk in here like you own the place. Who do you think you are? And notice they did it as he was walking in in the public. They do it uh, into the temple. They do it in public. 
And Jesus responds. And in verse 29, he says to them, I'll ask you a question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now the gospel of Mark opened with John the Baptist. And what was clear about him is he was not about the money. The man lived in the desert and ate bugs. He was a true believer. Right? Uh, and he looked like a prophet, and he talked like a prophet. And what was interesting about prophets in those days is God used prophets all through the Bible all the time, but they were never part of the successive leadership chain. Kings came by succession, priests came by succession, but God would raise up prophets from out of nowhere, and they were able to speak authoritatively. How did you know they were authoritative? You had to listen and assess their words. And so Jesus goes, John the Baptist, who authorized him? Did God or a group of guys? What do you think? And he challenges them. What did you do with the words of John the Baptist? Because when John the Baptist came, he called you to repent of your sin and to humble your hearts before God and await the arrival of the king. And he said, who sent John? Did God or some group? What authority did he have? And they realize they've got a problem. And so they call an emergency huddle in verse 31. It says, and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? So they understand how the chess game is going to play out. If we say he's from God, then he'll say, then why didn't you sit at his feet and learn from him? Why didn't you learn from him when he pointed at me and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Why did you not honor him and acknowledge me? Why didn't you listen and repent and obey? If he was really speaking the words of God, why didn't you listen to God as the religious leaders? But then verse 32 says, but if we say for man... They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. I love that. They realize we can't say he's from God because he'll trap us. And then they don't even finish the next sentence. They say, but if we say he's from man, and they stop. And it says they were afraid of the people because the people thought John was a prophet. The Gospel of Luke says they were afraid the crowd would hit them with stones till they died. So they go, if we say he's from God, he's going to say this. If we say he's from man... Man, we can't do that. We cannot do that. Uh, if we say he's from God, he, we lose honor. If we say he's from man, they will freak out and murder us. And so the religious leadership gets agnostic really quick. And in verse 33, they answer Jesus, we don't know. Now, interesting. Notice their calculus. This will lose us influence. This will lose us power. What they never do is ask, what's true did, was he really speaking for God? Was, was God communicating with us and we missed him? There's not a posture of humble, sincere search. That's the problem. I'm just trying to get a little religion and I'm trying to stay in control because money and power is really things that serve me so I have control. How many times do you know people will manipulate words around things of meaning just so they can really serve whatever they want to believe anyway? We do it all the time. And there's a lack of sincerity in the search. And let me just push this a little on this. Jesus isn't just challenging them, he's challenging us. Are you just here because you want to add a little religion while you stay in control of your money and power? Or is Jesus welcome to come into your life and you say, no, I really want to hear from God, the one who made me. Do you really want to hear it? Even if he challenges you? Even if he calls you to repent? Even if there's some tables set out in the temple of your heart that he has to flip, do you really want him? 
Or do you just want the brand, I'm a spiritual person? They just wanted the brand. They didn't really want the king. And so Jesus doesn't respect the lack of honesty in their search. And so their hardness brings darkness. They say, we don't know where John came from. And Jesus said, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'll do these things. If you can't figure that out, if there's not a sincerity to your search, then you don't find truth. Hardness leads to blindness. But then he says, but I will tell you a story though. And he tells a parable. And in doing so, he will summarize your entire Bible in 10 sentences. Let's begin. In verse 12, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away into another country. This man creates a vineyard and gives it all it needs in order to succeed. And then he leases it to tenants. Now, interestingly, this language is almost verbatim from the prophet Isaiah in chapter five. We don't have time to read it, but Isaiah five uh, says in verse seven, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So the vineyard is God's people, the nation of Israel. The tenants are those who are in charge. And so what Jesus is about to do is not anti-Semitic. Jesus is Jewish and, and the crowd that loves him is Jewish. He's challenging now the leadership, the tenants over the vineyard. Uh, and he says in verse two, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Uh, in the Old Testament, the prophets were often called servants of God. And so the idea is God blessed this nation and he put you in charge as leaders. And, and then God expected to see a prophet, uh, a return for his investment. That's a legitimate action. It, totally in line with ownership. If I own a company, I should get a percentage of the profits. That's good and that's right. That's expected. But verse three, the tenants took the servant and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That part is unbelievable. Try that with your landlord next time he asks for rent and see how well that goes. What will the owner do? Now, if you were uh, controlled by a foreign power, there are several examples in the Bible of what foreign leadership would do. If they took you over as a nation and you failed to pay tribute, what they did is they would send in an army, they would slaughter all the men, take the women and children captive, they would burn all the trees, sow salt into the dirt so nothing will ever grow again as an example to the nations. That's what you do. What does this guy do? Verse five. He sends another. Uh, excuse me, verse four. He sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sends another servant and they mock him. Okay, he gave him a second chance and they beat up that guy. Now send the armies. Verse five, and he sent another and him they killed. So now there's a pattern of injustice. And with many others, some they beat and some they killed. The owner is so patient and slowed anger, he keeps sending servants even though they're rejected. And if you're listening to this story, you start to question the justice of the owner. Incidentally is what happens if you actually read the Bible. People who don't say, man, the God of the Old Testament was so judgmental, he was so read, uh, mean, and I go, that's not what happens when you read the Old Testament. You see God is so slow to judge. Your frustration with God if you read the Old Testament is not how quickly he judges, it's how long he waits. As you read it, you go, why? Do you let injustice prevail? And it's because he is slow to anger. And he sent prophet after prophet 
teacher after teacher. Some they killed, some they beat. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, over and over again, they are spurned. Verse six, he had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Now you see the motive. I don't care what God wants. I want money and power for me because at the end of the day on the throne, I don't want someone else. I want me. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. That's the final indignity, not even a barrier. They will chuck his body over the wall his father built. Verse nine, now what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in their eyes. Jesus quotes the psalm that they were quoting about him as he rode into the city. It was a well-known messianic psalm. He's saying, I am the son, and you want to kill me. I am the stone you're about to reject, but your rejection is not judgment on me. It will actually bring judgment on you. I will become the cornerstone of a whole new building, a whole new temple. God is patient. He is kind. But if you persistently spurn his grace, you will eventually face judgment, right? The good news for us is these are the days of grace. This is how God works. Why does God let injustice prevail? Because he is patient with you and with me. That's why, right? And again, this is not anti-Semitic. He is not calling out the entire nation. It's the leadership he's condemning, not the vineyard, right? Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived he'd told the parable against them. You think? <laughs> and they left him and went away. J.R.R. Tolkien pictured this perfectly in The Lord of the Rings with the steward of Gondor. Do you remember? What's the job of the steward? I'm not the owner. I manage this until the one who it belongs comes. And so when the king returns, the steward should be the first one to say, this all belongs to you. And yet what happens when you watch the movie? The steward refuses to let go because he wants power, he wants control, and he refuses to bow the knee to the king. But does that destroy the king? No, it destroys the steward who ends up after eating grapes in the grossest way possible, falling off a huge ledge while on fire. It doesn't go good for him. And for us, uh, there is a king. Will I bow to him? Now, They, of all people, the leadership, should be bowing the knee to him first. They were supposed to lead the nation to worship the Messiah, but rather they want control. But they can't destroy him. Why? Because it's what we learned from the movie Gladiator. Joaquin Phoenix can't simply kill Russell Crowe. He's loved by the people. But the mob is fickle, brother. And so if you can turn the mob against him, then you can kill him. And so that's what they'll seek to do. And we're going to watch multiple rounds of them try to square off against the king. And they're going to lose every round. We'll see how far we can get. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you're true and don't care about anyone's opinions. That's what they learned the day before. For we are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Notice, they ask a question about taxes to Caesar, the head of Rome. Uh, Rome imposed a tax upon Judea, and the people of Judea saw that as an extreme indignity that a Gentile foreign power ruled us, and we had to pay him money as a sign of humiliation for this foreign rule. And so they're trying to set Jesus up in a lose-lose. They get him in front of the crowd and say, should we pay taxes or not? And if he says, yes, we should, then the crowd's like, boo, and he loses favor with the crowd. But if he says, no, don't pay taxes, they're like, yeah, don't pay taxes. And then they go tell Caesar and get him killed. And so they're like, this is going to be great. He's trapped. How does Jesus respond? Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, there's an irony in this. They're like, should we pay taxes to this foreign government? And he was like, I don't know. Do you have a denarius, which was the money used in that governmental system? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure, right here. And by doing that, he makes them admit that they're a participant in this this, uh, system that Caesar manages. Should we pay taxes? You got a denarius? Yeah, right here. It's, it's like that old Monty Python. What has Rome ever done for us? Like, they gave us the aqueduct. Beyond that, what has Rome ever done for us? And they're like, oh, the roads. Well, of course the roads. But beyond that, what has Rome ever done? And uh, he just says like, hey, are you participating in the system they fund? That's interesting. Because this coinage that you use to do business implicitly acknowledges his authority in the governmental sphere. And so he has the right to charge a tax for that. And so we asked him, whose image or likeness, icon, is on it? And it had Caesar's face on it. He says, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what's God's. There's these divinely constituted spheres, right? And we all know this. Uh, we accept, we pay taxes to the government here, right? Because of roads and ambulances and schools and such. We realize, hey, if I participate in the system, we at some level pay into the system. That makes sense. And he says, so if Caesar is running the system under which you are, pay to that. Give him his icon, that which is made in his image. And he says, but then give God what is God's. What's made in God's image, class? You and me. And he confronts them again on their heart. Hey, give to Caesar what bears his image, but you're supposed to give to God what bears God's image, namely you, your heart. Are you worshiping God? You understand I've got to pay for infrastructure. That's fair. If I drive on these roads, if the fire truck comes when my house is on fire, then I understand I I, I pay into a system I benefit from. But when you look through your eyes and listen through your ears and your heart beats and lungs breathe without you actively managing it, does it ever cross your mind who built this system? And what does he want from me? He says, you just take advantage of it and act like it's just yours. Who's managing this system through which you see and eat and sleep and laugh and love and enjoy? Has it crossed your mind what your obligations might be to him? And they marveled at him. The they there is not the crowd. That's his adversaries because they realize he just judo moved to their question. And they're like, Okay, he's better than we thought. (laughs) Send in somebody else. 
and they send in the Sadducees in verse 18. And they came to him who say there is no resurrection. That's a hint that Mark's original audience uh, was Romans, pagans like many of you and me. Uh, because Jews don't need an explanation of who the Sadducees were. They believed only the first five books of the Bible were inspired and they believed there was no resurrection. You just die and go into the dirt. And yet Mark feels the need to explain that to us. And they ask him a question and I won't read it. They ask a question because it's gonna take too long. Uh, where they say, hey, uh, a woman's husband dies and so she marries his brother, which was sort of a welfare system of that day in the Old Testament that, uh, that if, if your husband died, you needed an heir in his name to take over his family land so his family wouldn't lose it. And so a brother would, would marry that wife to, to produce an heir for his brother so he wouldn't benefit and also would take care of his brother's wife. It, it was sort of a, a crude welfare system of the day. We don't have time to go into details about it. But they use that as a staging ground for a question. They say, okay, this woman's married to a guy. He dies, she marries his brother. He dies, she marries his brother. He dies, she marries his brother. She marries seven different guys. So in the resurrection, who she's married to? When she goes to heaven, she's going to have seven husbands? That's ridiculous. And, and they're trying to make the resurrection sound ridiculous. Isn't it so stupid to believe there's life after death? And Jesus confronts them in verse 24, and he says to them, is not the reason you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Isn't that a great way to answer their question? So who is she married to in the resurrection? Isn't your wrongness because you're not familiar with this? Now, these are guys who had built their life on this book. That would be like me saying to a senator, isn't the reason you're wrong because you've never taken a civics class? And they're like, what? How dare you? And yet he comes to them and he says, when they rise from the dead, they will not be married or given in marriage. They'll be like the angels. Heaven is an entirely different estate. Tantalizing questions to that, we will not answer at all today. Uh, verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, because that's the nature of their question, have you not read the book of Moses? That's the only one they cared about. And the passage of the burning bush, that's probably one of the most famous ones. And he says, didn't you read that where God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And Jesus bases his argument on the tense of a verb. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that haven't entirely come to fulfillment. But do you think he was, was the God of those guys and they're gone? No, he is the God of those guys. And all that he promised them will come to pass. And so he wins on the tense of a verb. I am the God of the living and the dead. There is more to this life than just money and power. Right? I am a God who keeps his promises. And I'm the God who made you and gave you life and breath and everything else. Are you attentive to my word and my heart? So they're done. Verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now this guy seems the least combative, right? Uh, he's a scribe. They spent all their time reading the scriptures and they would copy it meticulously by hand. That's what scribe means. So this guy spends all his time uh, studying and writing the law, the Old Testament. And he hears them disputing and hears a good answer. And seeing that, he asks him, which commandment is the most important of all? He asks a good question. There's 613 commands back here. Wh which one's the most important one? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. What does God want? Does he want the busyness of religious performance? Does he want a hat tip in the holidays while I live my own life for my own money and power? No, he says, I want you to love me with all you have. And when you do that, it will become love 
for the people made in my image. And when you love me and you love them, you will instinctively and intrinsically do everything externally I was asking you to do. And what's interesting is it says, the scribe says in verse 32, you're right. You've truly said that he's one. There's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love one neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and scribes. The scribe checks notes, goes, he's right. That's amazing. He just summarized the entire Bible. That's incredible. A heart that wholly belongs to him that he then turns to become a sincere and supernatural love for others. Unbelievable. And Jesus answered him and said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Why? Because he's too good. But where does he challenge them and challenge us? At the root is not just do I know some things about the Bible, that I give a little money to some charities. It's do I love him? Do I want to know him? Is there a sincerity to my search? Am I willing for him to challenge me to turn over the tables in the temple of my heart? And do I want to acknowledge the maker of all this and see that what he wants more than anything from me is not performance, but love? At the center of the universe is not a list of rules. It's a dynamic relationship with a holy and beautiful God. That's not a bad deal. It will change you but it'll change you from the inside out. Not a hollow performance, but an internal renovation. That's what he's aiming at. They're done asking questions, so Jesus asked one of his own. Oh, this is good. We're actually gonna make it on time. Uh, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, God told King David in the Old Testament, the Messiah, the king who will rule forever, will come from your descendants. And so Jesus is not saying that David was wrong. That's right. But what Jesus does is he challenges the boundaries of their assumptions of who the Messiah is. Who's the Messiah? Son of David. Okay, so he's going to come from David's line. Then how come David called him Lord. This is an ancestral society. You honored your fathers and you really honored your ancestors. And so if there's a pecking order of authority and honor, it goes up. Parents don't bow to children. Right? Ancestors don't bow to kids. And so who has the most authority, power, prestige, honor? Whoever's older. And so who is the Messiah? Oh, he's going to come from the line of David. Yeah, that's true. But then David hits a knee and calls him master. Who could the greatest of all kings kneel before and call master? And they're like, I don't know. And Jesus leaves. He's like, something to think about, isn't it? <laughs> After quoting multitude of scriptures about the sun is here, the stone that this whole temple is built on is here, the Messiah is here. And yes, I am genealogically the son of David, but I'm not just in the line of the great king. I am the king of all kings. I'm in a category all my own. And what I'm here to do is not just usurp Roman occupation for the sake of this nation in this day. I'm fighting a bigger battle. I'm fighting sin itself. I'm fighting condemnation. I'm fighting that which corrodes your heart that you can't clean on your own. 
But I've come as a refining fire, as a fuller soap, not to destroy you, but to wash you clean, not to burn you up, but to burn up the dross so you're purely what you're meant to be as a man and woman under God. I have come to build a new kingdom of those who build their lives on me. I don't know what size Jesus is in your mind, but he is not meek and mild Jesus, and he's not just little baby Jesus. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of you and me. That's how he presents himself here, and that's why they really didn't like him, because he challenges their control. And just to put an exclamation point on it, he says in verse 38, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honors at feasts, but who devour widows' homes and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. He says, guys, look out for the people who claim to be leaders, but you see in their heart what they love. What they love is respect, honor, fame, prestige for themselves and they will take advantage of the poor to enrich themselves. Beware of people like that. Get away from that. Interestingly, I meet so many people who punt Christianity, and you go, why? And they say, well, because it's just all about a bunch of pastors, ministers, and Christians that just want money and fame and power, and they just want that. It's a sick system, and so I'm punting Jesus. And you go, wait a minute. Before you storm out you need to understand that Jesus did first. The thing you're rejecting, he rejects. So don't reject the king by rejecting the thing the king rejects. Do you see that? So he says, hey, I don't want you to just put a little cloak of religion about a love of self. That's what the love of money's for. It's not like, ooh, look at you, Ben Franklin. It's I love the Benjamins because they serve me. I love the power because they serve me. I love the honor because they honor me. I love me. Who's on the throne? And he says, beware of the people who make a pretense of religion, but they will use people rather than serve them because God's not on the throne, they are. That's not the kind of leadership we need. They will receive the greater condemnation. They understood this is about them. Again, It's the leadership at this time in the nation. People who have the externals of religion, but no heart. They're like a taxidermist model of an animal. Fur's there, eyes, ears, nose, but the insides have been cast out. And Jesus says, what matters is the heart. I care about your heart. And just to stamp that, verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums which incidentally, there's nothing wrong with that. Verse 42, that was a joke. Uh, (laughs) And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, I gotta be honest with you. Little kid Ben hated those verses. Because I just thought, God is so mean. God's like, 
I want to get you down to your last two halves of a penny and I'm going to take those two. And I'm just like, this is my, I don't trust you, right? And you're like, yeah, do it. And you're like, why don't you help her out, man? Why don't you like collect, you know, I was just like, God, what are you doing? And I realized, no, what he's saying to them is, hey guys, look at this version of religion. That's just the external performance, acting like I've got it together, acting like I'm a good person, I'm a good person, based on what? But really in my heart, I just want to serve me. He says, I don't want that world. I want a heart that let goes of everything but God. And says, God, I trust you. I trust you because you made me. I trust you because you love me. I trust you because you have a purpose for my life. And when Jesus is watching her let go of everything but God, he's not taking everything from her. Why is he there? The true light stepped into the darkness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's watching her give everything. And he is about to do the same. The next day, he's looking at her and saying, do you know what I'm about to do? I'm going to give up everything. I've got nothing left but one piece of clothes and they will take it from me and cast lots for it. And then I will hang upon that cross, a cross I could leave, but I will joyfully submit to this and I will bleed out to my last drop of blood. Why will he do it? So that his blood could wash us clean. That our sin and our shame our wretched heart that we can't fix, that we're like the queen in Macbeth, out, damned spot out, and we can't do it. He will come like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap and wash us clean. He says, I'll take your judgment. I will take your shame. I will take your sin. And he who knew no sin will become sin for you. I'm not asking you to do what I was not willing to do first. I will give all for you. I will enter the grave but I won't stay dead because I'm not just in the line of David. I'm the king of kings. I'm not just a prophet or a rabbi. I'm your savior and Messiah. And I am the cornerstone that some reject, but when you build your house on me, you will never be put to shame. But the question he confronted them with and us with is where is your heart? You just want a little religion? But stay on the throne of your life? Or do you really want to know the God who made you? You don't have to have all the answers right now. You can leave here with more questions than answers. But what Jesus respects is the honesty of your search. Do you want to know him? Because if you do, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Because what he wants to do is be your king and your rescuer, your savior as a sacrifice. And he wants to renovate your heart from the inside out. So you can, by his grace, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbors yourself and build your life, not on the sand of money and power that will leave, but on the rock who's building a kingdom that will never fade. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.